The epidemiologist's motto can be taken as dirty hands, but a clean mind. I've taken that from Epidemiology for the Uninitiated by Kogan, Rose and Barker, published by B&J Publishing. To illustrate this point, I want to talk about a case report in this issue of Peritoneal Dialysis International by Podsick and colleagues that describes a case of encapsulating peritoneal sclerosis that occurred post-transplantation, speculating on whether a switch of the immunosuppressive therapy from everolimus to tacrolimus had a role in unmasking the condition. This speculation is an interesting observation, but difficult to substantiate, particularly as the patient had several other risk factors for EPS. Of course, exploring the epidemiology of EPS is fearfully complicated, and as a consequence we're still not in a position to be able to recommend a robust risk avoidance strategy. In their invited commentary in this issue of PDI, Nietzsche and Davenport discuss some of the problems that are faced when attempting to study this most challenging of conditions, including case ascertainment and the identification of population at risk. They conclude that the most appropriate study design required to minimise the risk of bias is adequately powered cohort studies that include prospective biomarker measurement. Despite best efforts, it is important to recognise that bias cannot be completely eliminated from epidemiological studies, and although adjustments are commonly made for measured variables, unmeasured influences present a problem. We include three metabolic studies that have been led from Peking University in this issue. The first is a six-month, randomised, unblinded controlled trial of ketoacid supplementation in PD, evaluating the impact on an indicator of insulin resistance known as HOMAR-IR. Although the primary outcome measure was not met, there were differences in secondary outcome measures, high-sensitivity CRP and leptin-adiponectin ratio between the groups by the end of the study. The potential effects of vitamin D on the immune system have stimulated considerable interest over the last decade or so, with associated studies linking deficiency to poorer patient outcome. This provided rationale for the second study, that evaluated the impact of baseline 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels on the subsequent development of peritonitis in 326 PD patients, divided according to tertile of vitamin D concentration. After adjustment for confounders including age, gender, dialysis duration, diabetes, serum albumin, residual renal function and history of peritonitis, the baseline 25-hydroxy vitamin D level was an independent predictor for the subsequent occurrence of peritonitis. With each increase of 1 nanomole in the concentration of baseline 25-hydroxy vitamin D being associated with a risk reduction of approximately 6%. Our reviewer was keen to explore the question as to whether patients with lower vitamin D levels were just sicker, and to address this, the Charlson and Kanoski indices were included in the statistical model. It is important to note that the mean vitamin D level in this study was low at 16 nanomoles per litre. The use of active vitamin D supplementation was not associated with a lower risk of peritonitis. The third study compared several different mechanisms to calculate lean body mass, utilising a validation cohort to test precision and accuracy. The methods that were investigated included dual energy X-ray absorptiometry, anthropometry, hand grip strength and creatinine kinetics. 
Each of these techniques are subject to a different range of confounders. For example, methods that rely on anthropometry may overestimate lean body mass in obesity patients or those with fluid retention. The newly developed equations that utilised anthropometrics and hand grip strength compared well with DEXA, importantly avoiding the requirement for the use of ionising radiation. Two papers on this issue from Australia report initiatives to tackle peritoneal infection. Readers will be aware of the Honeypot study that was published in The Lancet a couple of years ago and reported that daily antibacterial honey as part of exit site care was not superior for the prevention of overall peritoneal dialysis infection to standard exit site care plus the intranasal application of mupyrosin in Staphylococcus aureus carriers. Secondary outcome measures reported in this issue of PDI include organism-specific peritonitis rates and infection-related hospitalisation, reporting no difference between the groups. Mean peritonitis rates in that study were 0.41 episodes per year, both in the intervention and control groups, which is much lower than that reported at the start of a quality improvement initiative from Western Australia between 2008 and 2013. This involved the utilisation of a state-wide protocol for the management of PD-related peritonitis based on weight-adjusted doses of vancomycin and gentamicin as first-line therapy. Notably, peritonitis rates were 0.75 per year at the start of that period, falling to 0.41 by the end. Importantly, resistant rates to both antibiotics remained constant during the course of the study. The consistent application of evidence-based guidelines has the potential to reduce unwarranted variation leading to improvements in clinical care.